the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Scripture commands us in Ephesians 5.18, Be filled with the Spirit. If it is a command of Scripture that we be filled with the Spirit, then why, why do so many not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them? We've been speaking all this week to you about the desperate need for God to come down and grip a whole nation, a whole city, for God to come down in his power and break through the hardness. But there are reasons why God has withstood. There are reasons why Many do not have the Spirit of God. They have religion, but no Spirit of God. Today we want to talk about very specific reasons, things, behaviors, attitudes that block the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a lukewarm Christian, in the life of a person who is very religious, who may go to church every Sunday, who may give tithes and offerings, who may stand even in the pulpit and preach, but they have no Holy Spirit power. Why is that? Well, first and foremost, many live a hypocritical life. Their prayers are not earnest and sincere. Their prayers are cold, formal, without any feeling, without any power. They simply pray these prayers that they've said how many times? When I was just a boy, my mother and father would take me every week to the prayer meeting at the church. And there, men and women would kneel on that hard floor and we would pray. And I began doing something I should not have been doing. I'd listened to these people pray so many times, I knew what they were going to say before they said it. And so I began speaking very softly their prayer in unison with them. My dad reached over and thumped me on the head. I looked at him. He scowled at me. Stop. Well, he was right. I should not have been making fun of them. But I knew the prayers were dead. The church was dead. God wasn't going to do anything because no one was really opening their heart. The Holy Spirit does not come in response to dead, formal, cold prayers. Not only is their belief in Jesus a mere show, but insincere, and that insincerity carries over into relationships with others. One of the worst things that happened when I was just a boy is they had a nominating committee and mom and dad were both on the nominating committee. 
and they got home late and I was up unbeknownst to them because I was very concerned about what was happening at the church. Mom and dad were very upset and they spoke to one another in a forthright manner about what had happened at the nominating committee. There had been a fight over who was going to direct the Sunday school. And it had been a hard fight. The nominating committee had been very divided. And right in the middle of all of that was my teacher. So the next week when we went to church, mom and dad sent me down to go to the, the class. I stood outside. I wouldn't go in. The teacher came out and said, Raymond, come into class. I just shook my head. How could I go in when I knew that my teacher had been fighting with my mom and dad? Well, dad finally was called and he came down and he said, Raymond, you go in there now. I said, no, I'm not going to go in. He said, Raymond, do you want me to whip you? No, Daddy. How can I go in? What do you mean, how can you go in? You and teacher were fighting. How can I go in? It broke his heart. He had me go upstairs and sit with him in the adult class. And it wasn't until we got home that we finally, as a family, sat and talked about what happened at the nominating committee and prayed. Insincere, acting one way, saying something else. There are others of you listening who are so frivolous that the Holy Spirit can't deal with you. He won't enter in. Some of you are so proud, you can't have the Holy Spirit and be proud. Some of you like to prove that you're better than everybody else, and you like to give them strong advice. Who made you the advisor? Who put you in that place of judgment? You can't have the Holy Spirit when you're proud. Some of you are so caught in how you look in the restaurants you go to, in the entertainment you listen to. Some of you are so caught in the worldly movies and sports and television and internet and cell phone. Is it any wonder you're not filled with the Holy Spirit? There has to be a change. There has to be a change. Another reason why many Christians do not have the Holy Spirit is worldly-mindedness. So this can look like different things. It can look like a love of property, trying to get rich. This will prevent you from having the Holy Spirit. So, for example, one of our neighbors, we saw he has a giant new garage outside of his house so that he can store his boat. 
so we just walking by on the street we can see that this man has really set his heart on things of the world to not only go in debt for a boat but then to build an entire garage just to house it some people are so into their businesses into into being entrepreneurs that that's the main consuming focus of their life it could be milder it could just be that you love shopping it could be that you're you're putting all of your time and your attention into watching youtube videos on how to do your hair on how to do your makeup you're always looking for the best deals all of these things will grieve the Holy Spirit and prevent him from taking up his home in you. How could he dwell with us if all of your thoughts are in the things of the world and if all of your attention and all of your energy is absorbed in getting rich? And then when you get the money, you're in an agony if your conscience pressures you to do something good with it, to do something for the conversion of the world, to give to missions. You know, I have one friend who I dearly love, and he only gives, you know, a few dollars. He'll come to church and he'll give two dollars in the offering plate. I have another friend who will give five dollars to missions. That shows that you, there's not really a heart to give. It's just, well, I can spare a couple bucks. It won't really affect my way of living. Well, Jesus talked about the example of he was in the temple and they were the rich people who were casting a lot of money into the treasury in the temple. And then there was the poor widow who put in two mites. And Jesus said that the poor widow who put in two mites actually put in more because she gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had. So the requirement of the gospel is self-denial. And what that means very practically when it comes to money is that there has to actually be an effect on your standard of living because of your giving to the gospel. Um, Ray's parents actually are, are, good, are a good example of this. Maybe he wants to talk about it. They gave 50% of everything they made to the local church, to missions, to radio, and to sending a young woman in the Philippines all the way through school. This issue of giving is so large. We come day by day. We pour out our hearts and our lives for you. You can freely tune in and listen. And some of you have never given even $5. You, you simply consume what's being offered with no sense of responsibility. Others of you have gone way beyond any expectation and you have given for the work of the gospel so sacrificially that we've literally wept when we've received what you sent. And you're the ones we're so grateful for because without men and women who are willing to lay their lives down with us for revival in Washington, we will not be able to continue pouring out what the Lord gives us on radio. Yes, and it's those of you who are giving in, in such a manner that will have a strong 
presence of the Holy Spirit with you. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. So that's a present experience and part of that treasure in heaven that we have when we set our hearts to really be primarily interested in the work of the gospel, in helping the poor, in helping those who are persecuted. There's many ways that we can help the kingdom, but when that's where the bulk of our energy and spending is going, then that's where we're going to have the greatest manifestations of the presence of God. You know, part of what we've done and part of what I've done is I've laid my life down for the gospel. And many times people have said from to me, Pastor, what are you going to do when you get old? Because you have not put money away for retirement. And I've said, what are you talking about? I'm not ever going to retire. I'm not going to cast off the work of the gospel because I get old or I get sick. I'm in this for life. And some people say, Pastor, you're giving too much. You can't give that way. Well, I think they're wrong. And some of you, I'm so grateful for the way you give, but some of you give almost nothing. You're, you're saying to the Holy Spirit, I don't really want the Holy Spirit. I want the world and I want the security. And if I can have the world and the security, then as a nice add-on, I'd like the Holy Spirit. I'd like revival as a nice add-on. It's, it's not an add-on. It's everything. And some of you say, well, well, I've got to be very careful with my money. Oh, if it's your money, you better be very careful with it because the devil's after it. If it's Jesus' money, then you give as he calls you and you not hold back, but you give hilariously. You give in the spirit and the giving, if you remember the story of Cornelius, do you remember what the angel said to Cornelius when he came to him and told him to call for Peter? He said, your gifts, your financial gifts have risen before the God of heaven as a memorial offering. It was his generosity that caused the angel to choose him to reveal the, the Gentile Pentecost. So there's a direct correlation between whether you really want revival and the way you give. And we will see that reflected month by month if you give or if you don't give and how you give. Yes, and again, it's not about a specific figure it's about is your giving to the point where you are actually giving up certain luxuries or comforts in your life so that you can give to the work of God so in the example I shared about Pastor Ray's family as he was growing up they had I think vinyl floors plastic curtains none of their dishes matched 
they weren't just doing that because they thought that it was cool to be poor. They were doing that because they were actually putting that money towards helping ministries, towards helping the poor, towards helping the church. I drove with my dad, and as I was sitting beside him, we passed a beautiful ranch-style home. And I said, Daddy, why can't we have that kind of home? And he said, Raymond, we could have that home. We could afford that home. But we are giving our money to the bank of heaven because we're making payments on our house over on that side. So when we're finished here, we want a house that will last for eternity. It's a very different perspective on how we live. Yes, and so for some of you that might it might a hundred dollars a month might really be cutting into your comfort level. But others of you could easily give several thousand and it wouldn't affect your standard of living at all. So that's what I'm saying. It's not about the quantity, but it's about where is your heart really with Jesus, and that will be reflected in how your finances play out. So to continue this isn't just a money thing, but let's just finish up on this topic. So another way that you see a love of the world is in how you interact with others. So for example, some people, and I've heard actually waitresses talk about this, um, will give so little to those who are poor because there's no accountability for it. So let me explain what I mean. I've heard waitresses say that they hate working on Sunday afternoons because all the people get out of church and go out to eat and they don't tip well. So if that's how you're behaving, it's showing that you don't actually care for the person. Whether they're a laborer, they could be someone who moves furniture into your house, it could be someone who's doing yard work, it could be a mechanic, it could be a waiter or a waitress. If you're trying to grind them down to the minimum amount you can pay, even within a couple dollars, then you're showing that you don't actually have a heart for their best interest. And this is especially true if you would not do this with people who are at the same social rank as you. So, for example, you might be really giving and generous with your coworkers. Maybe you go and buy them a dozen bagels or something. Maybe you are very generous in giving gifts to your family. But the fact that you're not consistent in this across the board shows that you're actually being covetous and you're being unfair in how you relate to others. It's showing that you won't do what is right as your general pattern of behavior but only when it's for your best interest. So if you're behaving this way, the Spirit of God will not come and dwell with you. Now others, others of you neglect duties that you know you should be doing. And so you don't have the Holy Spirit. In other words, you don't pray with your family. You don't have family worship. You know you should. You don't have a spirit of prayer. If you neglect any known duty, you lose the spirit of prayer. 
So you must yield and do what the Lord has called you to do. And then he will grant to you a spirit of prevailing prayer. You cannot have the Holy Spirit and be in disagreement with God. If you've refused obedience to God, you must change. You may have forgotten it, but God has not. You must recall your failure and repent. God never will yield or grant you his Holy Spirit until you have lived repentant before him. If you know what it is to commune with God, how sweet it is to dissolve in humility and repentance, to be filled with the Spirit, you cannot help but desire a return to those joys. You may determine to pray earnestly for it and pray for a revival of, of religion, but on the whole you are unwilling to see it come. You have so much to do. You can't wait for it. Some of you have so filled your life with activity and with duties that you have pushed God out of your heart. Yes, yeah, so for example, I have a friend at the gym who said, she says, I don't have time to pray. Every time I try to pray my kids need something, I just pray for five minutes at night. Well, that person is not going to see revival come because she's not putting in the time with God to actually actively wait on God in the prayer closet for revival to come. So you may say that you want desire, that you desire revival, but wanting it is not the same as actually being willing to have it. So we see this in other areas of our life. For example, there might be a car that you want, but you're not willing to spend $40,000 on it. So instead you go with a car that's half the price. So it's the same thing in our approach to Christianity. We may want revival, but if we have other competing interests that outweigh that, then it will result in you actually being unwilling to really have revival. And revival, Alexandra, requires immense sacrifice on a personal level. Yes. There are some things, if you're not willing to give them up, even though they may be good things, if you're not willing to give them up, then you will find that you are just wishing for revival and wishing for the Holy Spirit, but God will not dwell with you. You must literally lead a different life. You must give up the world. You must make sacrifices. You must break off from your worldly associates and confess your sins. So on the whole, you do not really want to have the Spirit come in revival unless he will consent to let you live as you please. He will never do that. Some people say to me, Pastor, you have time to pray because you're a pastor. Well, why am I a pastor? Because I made choices that prayer was of utmost importance to me. 
that speaking the word of God was of utmost importance to me. We make choices. Yes, and these sacrifices are real. I can speak from my own experience. I've pretty much committed career suicide by becoming a Christian because I was going into collegiate teaching. I was going into academia. I was going to be a professional academic, which <laughs> I don't even know why, but I, that was just where my talents were. So anyway, so that that's utterly incompatible with living a committed Christian life because academia has gone so far left that to actually take a stand that says, no, I believe that Christianity is the truth and that other philosophies or religions are untrue that is intolerant. That is, they will not tolerate that in academia. So it requires a compromise. So that was something I had to give up. I mean, I've had to give up a lot of my old friendships. And this is true of any Christian. And the reason for that is because of the supreme importance of eternity in light of my short time on earth. So this heavenly mindedness is critical in order to actually make those sacrifices and make those decisions. You cannot live as you please and have Jesus. Yes. And again, the sacrifice, think about Charles Finney. He was in, New, I think it was New York City, and a wealthy man, I think, who owned Procter & Gamble, was it, or was it Ivory Soap? I forget. Anyway, a very wealthy man built out the church building so Charles Finney could preach in it. You know that involved a sacrifice on his part. So it looks like different things for different people. So let's continue. So let's say that you don't have the Holy Spirit. That is actually putting you in a place of guilt before God. And that guilt is as great as the authority of God is great. Because it's God who commands, be filled with the Spirit. That's again in Ephesians 5. So God commands Christians to be filled with the Spirit. And it's just as much a disobedience to God's commands to not be filled with the Spirit as it would be to swear, to steal, to cheat on your husband or wife. Yet there are many who don't blame themselves for not having the Spirit. They think they're good Christians because they go to church on Sunday, they go to prayer meetings, they take communion, they go to Bible study, but they're living year after year without the Spirit of God. So the God who says do not get drunk says also be filled with the Spirit. So let's look at this another way. You would say that if a, if a man was a habitual adulterer, if he was habitually cheating on his wife, or if he was a thief, you would say that person's not a Christian. Well, we would say why? Well, because he lives in habitual disobedience to God. Same thing if he swears, you would say that he doesn't have a love for God. 
you wouldn't allow that person to plead that his heart was right and say, well, it doesn't matter what words come out of my mouth, my heart's right with God. Because it's, you know it's untrue to say that God doesn't care about our words. Jesus even said that we would be judged by what we said on the day of judgment. And you would think it was outrageous for such a person to be in the church claiming to be a saved Christian or to have a group of such people calling themselves a Christian church. But someone who habitually swears or who habitually cheats on his wife is not living in any more disobedience to God than you are if you are living without the spirit of prayer and without the presence of God. The other side of this is that your guilt is also equal to all the good you might do if you were filled with the Spirit of God in as great a measure as it's your duty to be. You are entirely responsible to the church and to God for all the good you might do. A person is responsible for all the good that he or she can do. Now we've seen this very practically as we've struggled to find people who would actually cross over and make a commitment to really carry the burden for revival. So there are many, some of you even listening perhaps, who've called and said, you know, I'm ready to follow Jesus, I'm going to give up my sins, but really when it comes down to it, you're not. And you keep going back to the same old way of life. And what it does is it drags down the church. It's dead weight. And you're not actually contributing, contributing anything. So instead of being someone who's carrying the burden of prayer for the broadcast. Instead of being someone who's praying for revival in the listening audience. You're instead continually draining away the energy of your pastor, of your Christian friends who you repeatedly speak to, but you never actually get anywhere because you never actually change your behavior. I mean, we've actually come to the conclusion that for this time, those that we desire to pray with must have crossed over that line. They must have made that decision that they will, without reserve, commit themselves to walking clean in Jesus Christ. Now, if you make that decision, you may be called any number of names. You may be called a fanatic. You may be described as eccentric. And you'll probably deserve the titles. I've never known anyone who was really serious about Jesus and who was filled with the Spirit, who didn't seem a little strange. That's because that person becomes very unlike other people. They act under different influences. They take different views. They are moved by different motives. They are led by a different spirit, not the spirit of the world. So, if you make the decision to totally sell out and seek the spirit of prayer and seek to pray by faith, the prayer of faith, if you seek to walk righteous and to give and to be 
totally committed to the kingdom of God, you should expect people to think you very strange. People say, well, he's rather eccentric, he's strange. And if you ask them, well, what do you mean? They say, well, he's too spiritual. He's of no worldly good. Please, today, would you make up your mind to be strange to this world? To be separated unto Jesus? To be eccentric? There is such a thing as a false affected behavior. But there is also such a thing as being so deeply filled with the Spirit of God that you must and will act strange and eccentric to those who cannot understand the reasons behind your conduct. Paul, the apostle, was accused of being deranged by those who did not understand the power under which he acted. No doubt Festus thought the man was crazy, that much learning had made him mad. But Paul said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, Acts 26, 24, and 25. His conduct was so strange, so novel, that Festus thought he must have gone insane. But the truth simply was that Paul saw the subject so clearly, he threw his whole soul, his whole life into it, into this Jesus who met him on the Damascus road. You must make up your mind to throw yourself totally into Jesus. And the more you do this, the more you will live out of the world, walking closer to God. Yes, and just to speak a little bit more about this example of Paul, we read in the book of Philippians how he he goes through all of his wonderful pedigree of having been from the stock of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, he kept the law blamelessly, and then he says that he counted all of that dung so that he could win Christ. And that sounds wonderful, but think about what that actually cost him. So imagine those Pharisees who did not leave the synagogue, who did not leave their Jewish traditions, who did not stop keeping the Torah. Imagine what they thought about Paul. They must have thought this man was truly insane. And then imagine when Paul got locked up in jail for two years. You can just think of what these people were saying about him. They were saying, that's right, Paul's under the judgment of God because he left the Jewish faith and he went after this man who claimed he was the son of God, but he was really a blasphemer. So there's a real cost to following Jesus. And so it's not pretty and romantic all the time is what I'm saying. But but the excellency of Christ is so much greater than what is lost that that's why we're willing to continue walking that out. You know, and part of what I hear often as people talk about their pastor, they're saying his preaching doesn't meet my need. It doesn't feed me. Well, the ministers today... Many do not have enough depth of religious experience 
to now to know how to search and wake up the church or help those under temptation or to support the weak and direct the strong so when a minister has gone with the church as far as his experience in spiritual exercise goes he stops a church usually will go no higher than its pastor will go he needs a renewed experience until his heart has been broken up afresh and starts again in the divine life and Christian experience, he will not help his congregation further. He may preach sound doctrine. Yet so can an unconverted minister preach sound doctrine. But his preaching will lack that searching pungency, that practical bearing, that unction, which alone will reach the spiritually minded Christian. If this is the situation you're in, Let it drive you into the prayer closet where you begin to cry out for your pastor and plead with Jesus to renew his spiritual life. Don't criticize him. Don't undercut him. But cry out to Jesus and ask that he would come and give him a freshness in the spirit. You see... Another's fault can make us very proud. If you have the Spirit of God, you must make up your mind to accept experiencing opposition. You must accept that other people are going to look at you as though you are a strange bird. But your goal is not to be accepted by the family you're a part of. It's not to be accepted by the worldly church it's not to be accepted at your work it is to be accepted by jesus christ and filled with his righteousness yes and it's not just strangeness that we're talking about but you will experience real opposition by other christians perhaps even by the elders of your church by the world and this opposition is sometimes tricky because it seems godly. So, for example, I was once in a church that was rather legalistic, and they really opposed me because I felt that I was called to missions. And they said, well, women can't be called to missions without being submitted to their husband. So, unless your husband is called to missions, then you're not called to missions. So you might get this kind of ugly spiritual kickback that sounds godly on the surface. But that's the natural result because there's an opposition in the spirit. There's the spirit of God on the one hand and then there's a legalistic spirit on the other hand. These same people will oppose you if you begin to express concerns about their preaching. Perhaps you think that they're making Jesus seem like a get-out-of-hell-free card. And so you talk to them about the need for holiness, and then this happened to me. I was accused of being used by Satan to discourage them. So this is there's actually real opposition that you will face. That on the one hand, you'll be considered strange, but on the other hand, you may actually be truly opposed by those in the so-called church. So you have to expect very frequent and agonizing conflicts with Satan 
Satan has very little trouble with Christians who are not spiritual, but lukewarm, worldly-minded. These Christians do not understand what is said about spiritual conflicts. Perhaps they'll smile when spiritual battles are mentioned, so the devil leaves them alone. They don't disturb him. He doesn't disturb them. But spiritual Christians, whom Satan understands very well, are really injuring him. Therefore, he sets himself against them. Such Christians often have terrible conflicts. They have temptations they never thought of. Thoughts will flash through their minds. and They'll say, where did that come from? That's wickedness. That's not who I am. You can expect terrible conflicts if you make the decision to earnestly seek the Holy Spirit and revival. You'll have great conflicts within yourself, conflicts you've never dreamed of, judgments against what you do and what you say. People will say, you're crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you give that? Come to your senses. Take care of your life. And then sometimes you'll find inner weaknesses. The flesh lusting against the spirit. And you have to come to a place where you finally say, No, I am wholly sacrificed to Jesus. And I will do, I will go, I will give whatever he calls me to do. But oh, let me tell you, you will have peace with God. Yes. So if the church, if sinners, if the devil are all opposing you, but you're filled with the Spirit, you will still have peace with God. So this is an encouragement. Those of you listening to this broadcast who are facing horrible trials, conflicts, temptations, you're groaning, sighing, praying, weeping over the state of the church and the country. Your hearts are broken. You can't sleep at night because you're so distressed about the church. Remember this, that your peace towards God is flowing like a river. You have peace of conscience if you're led by the Spirit. You're not constantly loaded down and tortured by a guilty conscience. Instead, your conscience is calm, quiet, like a lake that's just totally smooth in the summer. If you're filled with the Spirit, you will also be useful to God. You won't be able to help but be useful. Even if you were sick and unable to leave your room and you couldn't see anyone, you would be ten times more useful than a hundred lukewarm Christians with no spirituality. One example of this is a, a Christian man who was dying of tuberculosis, who had been sick for years and was poor, and a kind but unconverted merchant in town was sending him gifts for, to comfort him as he was sick and to his family. So the dying man was grateful, but he couldn't return the favor. So he decided that praying for the merchant's salvation was the greatest gift he could give. He began to pray, and his soul was kindled with the Spirit, and he was in vibrant communication with God. 
While this was happening, there was not a revival in progress in the town, but to everyone's surprise, the merchant accepted Jesus as his Lord. He came out as a Christian. And this conversion was a spark that kindled a fire of revival all over the town, and many were saved. So this Christian man who was dying was praying. He lingered on in this condition for, seven, for several years. And after his death, Charles Finney visited his home and met his widow, who showed him the man's diary that he'd kept. So this is what his entries looked like. He wrote, I am acquainted with about 30 ministers and churches. And then he went on to say how he set aside certain hours in the day and week to pray for each of those ministers and churches. And he also prayed for different missionary stations. So his diary usually read like this. Today I was enabled to offer what I call the prayer of faith for the outpouring of the Spirit on such and such a church. And I trust God will soon bring a revival. On another day, he wrote, I have today been able to offer what I call the prayer of faith for another church, and he would name it, and trust there will be revival there. He prayed this way over a great number of churches, writing down the fact that he prayed for them in faith that a revival would soon start. Of the missionary stations, he mentioned in particular one in Sri Lanka, and there was a revival there. The last place mentioned in his diary for which he offered the prayer of faith was the place in which he lived. So not long after he died, revival started in each of the places mentioned in his diary, nearly in the order in which he had prayed through for them. And finally, the revival came to the town where he had lived. So it's it was the widow who showed these documents, and she said that her husband had prayed so much during his sickness that she often feared he would pray himself to death. So the revival where he lived was so great and powerful, and the fact that it was about to start was not hidden from this dying servant of the Lord. He, in other words, he knew before he died that there would be a revival in each of these places, even though none of the revival started until he had already died. The scriptures in Psalm twenty-five, fourteen says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. So even though this man was too weak and sick to even leave his house, he was more useful to the world and to the church than were all of the heartless professing Christians in that area who weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll not find yourself distressed, annoyed, or worried when people speak against you. When you find people irritated and fretting over every little thing that touches them, you can be very sure they are not filled with the Spirit of Christ. Jesus Christ could have everything said against him that malice invented and yet not be disturbed by it. If you desire to be meek under persecution, you will have an exemplary temper of the Holy Spirit. You will be calm. You will not be confused or worried when you see a storm coming. 
People will be astonished at your calm and cheerful disposition. Even under heavy trials, they will not understand the inner support of the Spirit-filled believer. We want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we want revival, and we are giving everything we have to cry out for that revival. Will you join us in praying for revival? And will you give everything you have to Jesus Christ? Will you sell out for Jesus? Well, we're out of time for this broadcast. But please, would you write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. We are Alexandra Greenlee and Pastor Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. Please write to us or send us an email through the webpage. So we praise God. We praise God for you and for your prayers. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. We'll talk to you soon. God bless you. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. With great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. With Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.